In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Join us in this conversation as we discuss following Jesus, leadership, and doing life with others. Welcome to the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Mark and I am today with Adam Borneman. Adam and I have been friends for a long time, many, many years, and um, we get the pleasure to do some ministry together. And uh, today he's agreed to come in and talk to us about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, who's focused on making disciples of Jesus. He's got a cool story, he's got a cool family, and I can't wait for you to get to know him a little bit. So welcome, Adam. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Early in the morning, isn't it? Uh, I'm up at 5.30, sometimes wow. with screaming kids, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I, uh, your kids are amazing. Uh, every time I see you, you have the funniest stories about them. Tell us a little bit about your, your family. Uh, okay, so I'm in that phase of life where everything's kind of a blur. Someone asked me the other day how they could pray for me, and I said, I have no idea, because uh, <laughs> I don't really know when I'm awake and when I'm asleep. <laughs> Uh, it's actually not that bad, but we have a four-year-old and one-year-old. Four-year-old Ooh, Maggie. Let's all stop for a moment of silence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the four and a, I guess about four and a half and one and a half, and um, they are both uh, two little girls, Maggie and Hannah, and they are both extremely high energy, social, never met a stranger, stubborn, always dancing or screaming, just very intense little girls, which is amazing in some ways. They're so much fun, and they're wearing us the heck out. So. <laughs> Um, and yeah. Je- Jessica must be a saint. Jessica is a saint. Uh, my wife, yeah, we've been, gosh, married since 2000. You need to get this right. 2004, five, yeah, yeah, I want to say five. That sounds about right. <laughs> in, a, in that ballpark somewhere. She is a saint. Uh, so well over a decade of marriage at this point, and mostly saint for putting up with me. Um, and now me plus our children, so... That's great. And yeah. she's been with you in, the, in your ministry the whole time, right? Yeah, we got married right out of college. Uh, met at Samford University in Birmingham. I uh, got married just a month or so after I graduated. Moved up to Boston. Went to Gordon-Conwell. Moved back to Birmingham. Was a pastor there for a while. So she's been in it with me. We actually met in a in a campus ministry. So Oh, cool. She's seen the, <laughs> this, the student, Adam, making, problem, making trouble in a campus ministry, craving attention, uh, doing stupid things, all the way to Pastor Adam. <laughs> wow. You've seen that too, I suppose, actually. So. Uh, I've known you for a while. Known um, you for a while. Well, you're no longer pastor in Birmingham, of course. You're now uh, uh, working at Macedonia Ministries here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Macedonia Ministries is the most unique ministry, one of the most unique ministries I know of. Huh. Um, tell, I don't think most of our folks listening is going to understand that, but I think it's important before we go into the conversation about discipling leadership. Sure. Spiritual leadership. Uh, but to tell them kind of what the vision of Macedonia is and how you got there. Yeah, Macedonian ministry is interesting. Macedonian uh, phrase refers to Acts 16 when the Spirit prevents Paul from going somewhere, and then there's a, a man who appears from Mace- a man from Macedonia appears who says, "Come over and help us." So this idea of "come over and help us" and hmm. um, Macedonian ministry got started in its earliest form in the in the 90s. The uh, cousins' family, Tom and Ann Cousins, who've been in Atlanta for a long time. A lot of um, our listeners this morning will know that name. Uh, wanted to do a lot of really good things uh, with um, with their resources, and one of those things was support pastors and, and their words, renew the church. So they started funding trips to the Holy Land for pastors, and uh, did that for many years, uh, for about a decade. And but the 
the realization was that just sending pastors to Israel for two weeks was a, a wonderful experience, but not really, not really a sustained moving of the needle in their congregations. It wasn't really having the ripple effect they hoped it would have. So um, a man named Tom Toole, who was our founder, came in. He was a friend of the cousins and he, um, uh, had been a pastor for decades, um, a very fruitful and successful pastor. And Tom's conclusion was, well, what if we you know, took that trip, but let's build something bigger around it. So they started with a two-year program of bringing pastors together, bringing a group of pastors together uh, every month. I think the group was probably 14 or 15 pastors to talk about practical ministry, talk about ministry life, talk about congregations. Um, and they did that for two years. They also traveled together. But uh, the, the short of it is that evolved into a three-year-long monthly gathering uh, that's now ecumenical. It's all over the country. Um, it's somewhere 25 to 30 denominations involved. That's and, incredible. And in Scotland, too. Um, so see all over the U.S. and Scotland. Well, yeah, in Scotland. See, people say Scotland. We'll say, well, yes, someone with a lot of money wanted us to do something in Scotland. <laughs> so we said, okay. And St. Andrews, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and in St. Andrews. Uh, so, you know, I get out there and walk the course, and, you know, just as one does. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I do have to say, I mean, this, this is the only thing that could have brought me back to Atlanta. I grew up here, but... I uh, didn't think I would ever come back. It's just, I, I pref- I'd prefer a smaller city. There's so much traffic. Um, yeah, Atlanta, but, you know, is an Indian word meaning road construction. <laughs> I didn't know if you meant that. <laughs> I thought it meant DOT. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, we moved back to Atlanta a few years ago. Um, and really, hardly anything else could have brought me back to Atlanta except this. I got into Macedonian ministry I was, because I was a pastor in Birmingham who was invited to be in a cohort there. So... Um, it, so, was, it was life-changing, and I get to go on staff, which is a huge gift. So your role, you go from pastor to now you're going all over the country working with groups of pastors, getting mm-hmm. them together to build that uh, kind of friendship, companionship community in these towns, different towns, different contexts, mm-hmm. right? Like rural North Carolina to... Yeah, we have rural North Carolina, Skid Row, Manhattan, oil fields in North Dakota. It's, it's, it's wild, so cool. actually. And it's really cool to see when those groups connect. Um, yeah, just the learning is is extraordinary. So I love to do it. I've learned a lot from you about that, about peer learning, um, and how how these pastors can come and kind of lay their their uh, professional titles to the side and not try to impress each other, but mm. just do life together. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And across denominations, that's kind of rare. Uh, most of the folks get together in denominational huddles, but mm. you guys break that too. So. Well, I think it's fascinating. So your um, your vision is bigger than mine. I mean, you get to see pastors all over the country working uh, effectively and ineffectively. So what is it that you're about discipleship, this concept of a life investing in another life focused on the vision that that person then will go and take that message mm-hmm. to? What are you seeing around the country that's really working? Hmm. What's really working, I think, is... I think the most basic way to put it is where you really see people um, pouring their life into other lives, putting people over programs. So I think, you know, for a long time, the church was able to rely on big programmatic thinking, was able to rely on getting the latest curriculum um, uh, because the the church for a long time was just one of those accepted mediating institutions in our communities, just like anywhere else where people would gather. The church was a place where people would gather. And so you could just program everything and it works really well just invite them um, and they'll come yeah just you know cr- create a curriculum and they'll be there as long as you have the coolest one as long as you have the next coolest video series people will be there um <laughs> and then netflix came out <laughs> yeah netflix has killed discipleship in america <laughs> um 
Not really. I love Netflix. Uh, <laughs> so I think for a long time that was the case. And so what I'm seeing working now is one, not that. Um, so what's working now is where people have said, you know, this really isn't about the curriculum. It's not really about the program. We're not the best show in town. We're not anywhere close. And so all we have left, you know, the only market we can corner at this point is the gospel. And the only <laughs> way to really corner that is to make it intensely relational. And I always hesitate to use the word relational because I think it gets thrown around and can mean a lot of different things. It sounds really nice. But I think the people who really mean relational in the sense that we're going to cut some of the programmatic thinking and make this about the mess of getting involved with other people on a consistent basis for a long period of time. I think mm. that's what works. Um, there's a few vestiges of Christendom in this country. There's a few bubbles. Um, I think North Atlanta actually is Wait, one we of We live them in one of those, don't we? We do. It's, it's very odd. We live in one of those bubbles where some of the kind of older Christendom programming still kind of works. Um, I don't think that's going to work very much longer. It, it doesn't work almost anywhere else. Um, mm. Most people are having to be much more simple and deep. Um, mm. And I think that's what works. What we see working with pastors around the country is pastors who are willing to make the hard decision to get rid of some of the things that clearly are not fruitful anymore, um, not nurturing spiritually to anybody, and instead simplify and go deep and make it about people, um, making it about Jesus. Do you see... Um folks that are able to pull that off to say, I got this church and I've got, you know, 57 different programs and half of them are sacred to people and half mm -hmm. of them people really don't care about and only a third of them are effective. And <laughs> do you see them making that shift to a, that deeper relational ministry and it working? Yeah, I do. Um, so there's a couple of things that you can say that are working. One is there are pastors who are willing to do that. And it's really hard. I, you know, I want to underscore that. That's hard work because it's already really hard to be a pastor. It's just, it's just hard. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is the expectations that people have around you and people who people have expectations who don't understand <laughs> what you're having to navigate as one human being. Um, and so to make those changes is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't like change because it's loss, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's grief. And so for pastor to come into a congregation and say, you know what, we're going to get rid of this or we're going to stop pushing this and we're going to try this for six months instead is a lot easier said than done. But I think, you know, there are places where that's happening. I was uh, talking, I'm always, and I'm always so pleasantly surprised to hear that. I was uh, talking to a pastor up in, in Manhattan um, on the phone a few weeks ago and I was asking, well, how are these weeks leading up to Christmas going? Um, a lot of us call that Advent. Others have some sort of themes along those lines. And, you know, she said that, uh, you know, actually, we, we don't have a lot of sacred cows left in this church. We know it, it's really kind of clear what we're all about here. And I don't have to get caught up in the normal Christmas programming. Wow. And I, th and I said, praise God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, you know, 90% of that programming that goes into those times of year now is, uh, it's insane. It really is. And it's, but it's, and it's hard to make that transition, but there are churches that do that. The other group that's doing really well with this are people who have not who don't have any of the baggage. Church planners. Ah, um, uh, they're starting. They're starting start. fresh. A lot of them are bivocational, so the expectations are not the bar is not that high. I mean, people know that uh, they have another job, and people know that they can't do all of this all the time. And so, um, it, what's interesting is actually one of the, one of the shifts that we that we're starting to report that we're seeing is that a lot of these younger church planners in urban areas doing very creative things. 
um, they're now being perceived as the experts. They're, they're being invited by these big suburban churches to come in and say, how do you do ministry? That's hilarious. And a lot of them are saying, you need to simplify. That's the tail wagging the dog. Isn't it, it is. And it's, it's the, that, that shift over the last decade is, is remarkable and, and pretty obvious to us, actually. Wow. Um, and so a lot of the people that around the country that we work with who are in context like that, we invite them to do all sorts of things for us, to run workshops and to you know, write articles because um, they've had no choice but to get it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I like. Well, it's 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 actually looks closer to the early church, I guess, that way. And I like to call it instead of the Great Commission, the Great Distraction. I mm. think, I think the larger churches or ministries that have been around a while, we do get program addicted. And if we think we have another program that it'll come, and somehow if if you sit there in that room long enough, you'll walk out a faithful follower of Jesus. And I don't see it happening that way. And and. I think you got to have some of those things to pay the rent and to mm. keep, you know, entry points, I would say, for people that don't know. But discipleship is a different animal, isn't it? I mean, yeah. true disciple making. And uh, what I love about you is that you are you were a pastor, you get pastors. You're not mm. a pastor anymore. You are you attend a church uh, locally, and you work in this ministry. Mm. But beyond that, you have your own group of men that you're pouring into, and I know that for a fact. Every Friday morning at six thirty, <laughs> yeah. you have personally invited just different men from different walks of life to come together. Uh, tell us a little bit of how did that start for you? How did you mm. find those guys, and how did you invite them, and what are you doing with them? Yeah, and the bigger background of that is that wherever I've been, whether as a pastor in Birmingham or the um, couple of churches I've regularly attended worship at since then, I've always found this. I've just not been able to get away from that sort of ministry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I it's not because um, I think I have something more to offer than other people do, but I realize that I need it. Actually, I, I need the community, um, and especially to be around other uh, to be around other men. And to, in my case, uh, my, my wife is in a, a women's group at our church that has meant a great deal to her in her phase of life as well. But for me, I, I've done this at every church I've been at over the last ten years. Is I've um, assembled a group of guys to uh, share life together, to dig deeper into the gospel together. And so it's just something that has just been a part of me that I don't think I could get, get away from if I tried. Um, sometimes it goes better than others, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, so yeah, how do, how do these things start? That's a really good question. I don't know how these things start. Usually I think this is something I want to do. <laughs> so I'll talk to the pe- I'll talk to the powers that be and say, we're doing this. <laughs> okay. And they'll say, okay. Um, and that's been really instructive, actually. I think people are intimidated by this idea of doing this type of work, but most healthy churches are going to say, great, go do it. I mean, but, but here's the thing about your group. You don't meet in a church. Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> you meet in like an <laughs> office complex. Yeah. And... You're, and these guys are all walks of life, right? Businessmen, ages, range. Yeah, our guys are probably 30 to 60. Yeah, and what are you... And so when you, you invited, you just met them at church, I guess, or coffee shops? Yeah, it was a combination. Um, some of these I met from the neighborhood. Others I met at church. Others saw a note about it in a Sunday school bulletin or something like that, okay. and we were in touch. But by and large, uh, most of them I had some contact with before and personally invited them. All right. And then what did you invite them to? Uh, I invited them essentially to a Bible study. Um, you know, this is about much more than Bible study, but I think that's a good entry point for a lot of people. It's not yeah. intimidating. And you say, hey, we want to get a group of people together. We want to talk about life. We want to study the scriptures. And, you know, common language for them is Bible study. Um, but we make it about more than that, too. Uh, yeah. 
it's just been a good entry point for us. And so what's your, what's your, uh, as you meet together with these guys, it's obviously going really well. There's how many, about eight or 10 guys? Yeah, I think this spring we'll have something like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how long do you anticipate before these guys then will say, hey, Adam, this has been great, but I'm going to go start my own group? Well, it's interesting, you know, and this is, again, going back to putting people over program, right? Mm-hmm. So if you really make it about the people, you can start to see some people, they're going to be ready for that sooner than others. And you have to be willing to shift gears with each person, right? You, right. And, and, and Jesus does this so well. I mean, you just have to tailor to people. Mm. And make them the priority. Some people are going to be rearing to go, and so you you say, "Let me help you get started." Yeah. Um, others are going to need a long time. Others are going to need a really long time. They're going to need to go through a few. <laughs> it's like children, isn't it? Uh, well, <laughs> some leave if, the house at eighteen. If 18. I'm an example of this at all, then yes, it is like it's like <laughs> some leave the house at twenty eight. <laughs> goodness. Uh, yeah. So I, but the goal is is to equip these guys to be able to to do this work to. One, to have a sense of how to walk through the scriptures with somebody, but also to equip others, right? I mean, to, so that we can equip and nurture each other so that we can do the same for others. I just call it life to life to life, right? Life to life to life. Um, like and that. That, that for me is the mindset. And it's, I wish there was a formula. This would be a lot easier. Yeah. But I actually think it's a lot more fun with there not being a formula. Yeah. You know, if we just accept the... You know, it's, it's, in one way, you want to say that it's kind of just accepting the mess of this work, but I actually think there's a lot of grace in that. If you just sit back and say, you know, really, this is not my ministry. Mm. It's not. That's right. I'm a steward of what God is doing in these people's lives, and really, my role is to be attentive to what the Spirit is doing. Yeah, and, 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 my, and my personality, seat. as soon as I try to control the spirits, when I start getting frustrated, right? <laughs> as soon as when yeah. I'm mad that so and so didn't show up this week, right? And I had, to, I had to check myself and say, "Wait a minute, yeah, I'm not in control of this." So it really is a matter of being attentive to what the spirit is doing in each person's life, and then discerning and sensing, okay, what's what's the next step? I love that. I'm with my group of men. I my constant prayer before they all show up is, "Oh no, what am I going to do?" Uh, but my, um, my other prayer is, Lord, help me reflect you, not play you. Yeah. I'm not God in their life. I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers, but I can certainly reflect Christ and what I know about Christ to these guys in a, you know, when, when the world's been handed it to them all week, they've, their mortgage is due, mm-hmm. their job is stressful and they come and sit in my living room on a Monday night and plop down and look at me and I say, so let's go around the room. How you doing? And I always know that about 20% of my guys are going to be in crisis. It's just the way it is. Every group I've ever had, about 20, and it's not always the same ones, but about 20% are going to be in crisis. The others are doing, you know, okay. And then I get to remind them of the gospel. You have a great uh, vision of what the gospel really is. That's a word I think we hear a lot. And a lot of people think, oh, well, it's Jesus died, you know, mm-hmm. but how would you, in your own words, explain and want these guys that you're pouring into to know this is the gospel? Yeah, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is risen and Lord of everything. Um, because if Jesus is Lord of everything, then <laughs> either everything matters or nothing matters, right? I mean, mm. it's there's, for me, a lot of grace in that statement. Mm. Um, you know, the, the New Testament especially in Paul's letters, this cosmic vision of Jesus has been so central for me, my understanding of the gospel, you know, at the beginning of Colossians and Ephesians, that 
it is he is in whom through whom for whom by whom all things were made that jesus is this is sort of the supreme agent of creation i don't know fully what that means hmm. i just know that to think that everything my life your life this whole world this whole universe has something to do with who god is is so not just beautiful to me but also just a um enormously gracious mm-hmm. um the gracious message that it's not about you it's just such good news <laughs> it actually is great <laughs> it news. really is great great news <laughs> thank god um and and the good news that in a um, culture that says it is all about you yeah it's, it's so brutal right because we and 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 some one of the most specific examples of this that i think about all the time is just our obsession with self-improvement culture. I mean, just the amount of books, when you walk into the bookstore and that front shelf is all about becoming some better version of yourself. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know how I don't, I'm pretty sure if I tried to do that, I'd, I'd want to uh, just crawl into a hole somewhere. I just think that's, <laughs> that is an endless pursuit of something that cannot be attained. And um, the most important thing, I think that the most important uh aspect of the gospel that I think the church can communicate in today's world in 219 really is the grace of it, mm. that uh, Jesus is Lord of everything. Therefore, you can f- freely cast yourself upon him and stop stop trying so hard. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I like that. Preaching is, uh, for me, is just finding another way this week to tell people, hey, God's not mad at you. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I got, yeah. and this week I get to find another way to tell people, "Hey, God is not mad at you. Oh, it's he so loves important. you. <laughs> God's not mad at you." You know, one of the things that has, um, one of the things that struck me years ago was a quote from Martin Luther that hmm. I think early on in ministry I would have seen a quote like this and just nodded my head because it felt like the right thing to nod my head to. But over the years, I've found um, supremely uh, profound and challenging to me, and that is, you know, Luther once said that. The most difficult thing for us is to accept that God loves us and has forgiven us of our sins. And it's so true. I think that the more complex life becomes, it's so hard to really accept that God loves us because we don't want to accept that we have nothing to offer, that we have nothing to do for God. To just just say that God really does love me, has created me to be loved by God is incredibly difficult to, to accept. Yeah. Yeah, I equate it to showing up at a party where somebody has a gift for you, but you don't have a gift for them. (laughs) And you feel just, you almost can't appreciate the gift they're giving you because this inner feeling is, I'm a dork, I'm a loser, I'm a sloth. How did I miss this? I didn't know I was supposed to bring a gift. And I feel like that way as well with with the gospel is that it feels like God's giving me something and I don't really have anything to offer. But that's not exactly true, is it? We do have something to offer. It's our love. It's our obedience. Yeah. And um, what is it that you think keeps keeps folks from getting into a life on life on life relationship with other men, spiritual leaders, uh, being spiritually transformed? What do you see are the barriers that folks face in committing to something like that? Not believing that God really loves us and has forgiven <laughs> us. And, and actually, I, you know, I'll laugh, but there's some truth in that. I think that it's fear. It's it's fear of what are they afraid of. Of how we might come off to people, it's fear uh, of of um, being rejected by others, even in subtle ways. It's fear of the awkwardness of transparency. I think um, men um, have been we've been conditioned to not do that. We, we, for some reason, our culture has has conditioned us to think that to be a good man 
is to not be a vulnerable man, hmm. which is the opposite of Jesus, yeah. <laughs> who was a very good man in, in most conventional senses of the word, but who is also obviously vulnerable. And, right. you know, one role of the church is to help men especially um, get better at bringing those two things back together. You know, the most, the most really good men, really strong men, are vulnerable men, and they know mm-hmm. how to do that. And we actually have a lot to learn from women on this. I mean, um, I think some of our we know well. We know from the research that women are by far more emotionally and socially intelligent than men are. So <laughs> we really do have a lot to learn uh, just on that level of being able to. We're learning, ladies. Be, transparent. be patient. Well, Keep, be patient. I'm not sure we're learning. I just said we <laughs> should. We be should learning. be. Learning. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I do. I think it's fear. I think it's fear of the other, and I often say that really, in some ways, fear of the other is is more deeply a fear of ourselves. We're, we're afraid of what the we, other will see in us. I think, think you know. It. I think as human beings, because of sin, I think we do have this fear of otherness, right? This fear of what's strange. It's fear of walking into a room and being in charge of something that we've never done that before. That's just that's different. That's mm. so we're afraid of a new thing. We're afraid of others, but. I think the truth is we're actually afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of what that mm. might mean for us. Um, wow. We're afraid of what's in our hearts. We're afraid that yeah. it might have to come out. Um, and some of that's been there for a long, long time, hasn't it? A really long time. Uh, but it's, it's in tension with this deep desire that I think is in all of us, being made in the image of God, to belong to others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, For me, discipleship really is belonging to Jesus beholding Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And part of belonging to Jesus is belonging to each other as well. Um, Would you say that one more time again? For you, discipleship is belonging to Jesus? Yeah, belonging to Jesus, beholding Jesus, and becoming like Jesus. And there's a lot of different ways to extrapolate that and what that looks like, but that's at least a helpful way for me to remember it. Absolutely. I think belonging is is so... It just I didn't uh, formulate it in my head ahead of time over the last few years, I'm more and more convinced that belonging just keeps coming up for me as something that is so vital for the church, is to create a place of belonging, hmm. to create spaces of belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be, I think the, it's, it's flipped a little bit, right? I think for a long time in the life of the church in the United States, when, when the church had their wonderful luxury and privilege, and by the way, I, I don't say this disparagingly, this is really good, right? That the church had it was a place in society where people very naturally go to and from and it was just part of their life and mm-hmm. um, a lot of good came out of that i was nurtured in that and I, i'm deeply thankful for it but i think for a long time there was this sense that you had to uh, you had to become something before you could belong right you had to become a member of extra you had to there was some line that needed to be crossed before you could belong but i think that has in many beautiful ways shifted to where it really is about belonging first mm-hmm. you know if you can belong to one another and together gather around the gospel, mm. then you can become something together. You can behold Jesus together. Uh, you'd said that, and I just had this image in my mind of, it's, it's so funny because whenever there's a campfire outside, even if there's a place where there's several tents, maybe, and people don't know each other, yeah. there's something about that fire that just draws people to it, and they just kind of surround it and look at it and stare at it, and, and everybody's always welcome, it seems like, to a fire. Yeah. And, you know, that's literally true, too. It's a good metaphor, but for me... It's literally around the fire pit in my backyard that I've had I've had far more important conversations with people about the gospel around my fire pit than I've had in church in a long time. Wow. And I don't I don't say that to 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 not to knock at the church. Yeah. Um, 
I just say that to give a sense of where people find their places of belonging. Yeah. And I think it's those types of spaces that we have to be attentive to. Um, you know, earlier you talked about the fact that you have a group of men that meets on Friday mornings in an office space. But, you know, truly, I actually hope that that group moves around a little bit. I'd like for us to be in different spaces together. I want to be in someone's living room one day. I want to, I just want to create spaces of belonging that intersect with people in different ways. Um, but yeah, that, that, I, that idea of a campfire and how people kind of huddle around it, uh, I think is, is a great image uh, for where these, these uh, relationships for discipleship take place. It's a good metaphor. Yeah, and I think the, the discipling, the guy who's in charge or the woman who's in charge of the group, their job is to really just keep that fire stoked in the center, no, keep good. it burning, yeah. you know, keep, keep us focused on what's important. And mm-hmm. I think for me, that takes some of the pressure off, you know, to lead other people uh, into a greater, deeper relationship with Jesus does not, you do not have to have a degree to do that. Mm-hmm. You do not have to have reverence. Probably better if you name. didn't. It probably is better if you did. <laughs> Yeah, because they uh, they think well for me. I mean, I do have Reverend in front of my name, but they think well, Mark, you know, you've been learned, you've learned how to do all this stuff, so it's easy for you. It's not. I'm nervous every time my guys show up at my house. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen tonight? Do I really have anything to offer? And uh, you know, sometimes I actually do. It's amazing. <laughs> One of the things that I found just in recent years, and I wasn't I wasn't very good at this when I was a pastor of a church in Birmingham. We started some small group stuff. We had a we had like a Monday evening uh, group just for everybody. It was men and women and just a small group. And then also started a smaller just guys group. And I think at the time, I really was heavy, almost too heavy on content. It was all about me teaching everybody. Uh. And what I've learned over time is that there's enormous freedom in not feeling like you have to teach everybody for however, you know an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But that you're creating space for a spiritual process that you're goes back to what I was saying earlier about the spirit and about being made in the image of God. That if you start with the fact that okay, these are people that I did not create, right? That God created, the image of God is in them, and that actually to believe that the spirit is always already at work in them in ways that I don't fully understand, and then just to serve up something for them to feast on okay. rather than me spoon feeding stuff is much <laughs> is a much more sustainable model for disciple making. Jesus does this. All the time, by the way, Jesus is always, you know, people want a direct answer from Jesus on things. And at almost every turn, he'll basically say, that's not the right question. <laughs> you know, he's always turning it around and say, well, have you thought of it this way, uh, essentially, right? Yeah. So for me, that's been enormously liberating. It's just to make make it about a process for people. Now, there are, there are times, of course, when I'll jump in um, and use some of my knowledge to kind of point in a certain direction. But what I really like to do is just know how to serve up good questions for people to process and and more or less be awakened to what the Spirit is doing in their life. That's that's one of the things that's most exciting for me in the work of group discipleship is just having every once in a while seeing clearly a moment where someone is awakened to something that's happening in their life. Light bulb, huh? Yeah, exactly. Just this coming to a realization that something has been happening that I didn't do for them, that they didn't initiate, but that God has been doing. I agree. And we can unfortunately quench that if we make it about us and what we have to offer. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of our anxiety can come into this because we think, oh, okay, what am I going to do for these people today? Yeah. Well, why don't you just come in with two good questions and see yeah. where it takes you? <laughs> I love those that. Are the, those are the best groups I've had is when we just have a couple of good questions based on a scripture passage and just let it run. For more information, check out our website, 419disciplemakers.org. 
Join us again next week as we continue our conversation on the 419 Disciple Makers podcast.